Father, it's easy for those words to slide across our lips. May it be so that our greatest joy is in knowing you and that in you we find our rest and our relief and our righteousness. Father, as we open our Bibles right now, would you refresh us? Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us even in this strong passage where our Lord teaches his disciples? We want to grow. We want to learn. We want to live for you. We want to shine as bright lights in this world. We recognize how weak we really are, how easy it is to cave in, to give in. And so use now this time, this simple act of worship, of sitting still and listening to the word. Use it to strengthen us immensely, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Grab your Bibles. Grab your fast listening mode. Grab your pens and your outlines if you find those helpful. You should have found those in your bulletin this morning. We are continuing in Matthew's Gospel and we want to complete Matthew chapter 23 today because next Sunday, the first Sunday of September already, we want to begin a brand new fall series as we turn our page from Matthew 23 to Matthew chapter 24. We will find that right before he goes to the cross, our Lord is going to sit down. On, it's called the Olivet Discourse. And there on the Mount of Olives, our Lord is going to sit and teach his disciples about his second coming. What is it going to be like straight from Jesus' mouth when he returns in the last days of the world? It's prophetic, it's scary, it's profound. It's overwhelming, and I think you'll find it very helpful in gaining perspective in all that's going on in the news today. God's clock is ticking, and we want to spend all fall in this prophetic passage of Matthew 24, Matthew 25, straight from our Lord's mouth on the last days. I know you'll look forward to that. I will as well. You pray for me as I prepare, and we'll look for a good fall in the Word of God on Sunday mornings, uh, growing in grace. To help us prepare our mindset for this morning, um, let me share just a couple of anecdotal stories. One is from President Theodore Roosevelt, and I don't know if it's true or apocryphal, but there is a story that goes like this, that during one of Teddy Roosevelt's political campaigns, he was at his home in Oyster Bay, Long Island, and a group of political campaigners and politicians gathered to meet with him there, and the president met them with his coat off and his sleeves rolled up. He said, ah, gentlemen, as they approached, come down to the barn and we will talk while I do some work. At the the barn, Roosevelt picked up a pitchfork and then looked around for the hay. And then he called out, John, where's all the hay? Up from the loft, a voice came and, sorry, sir, John called down from the hayloft. I ain't had time to toss it back down again after you pitched it up while them Iowa folks were here. We kind of laugh about it, but don't we pretty much expect our politicians to be duplicitous nowadays? I mean, no one's surprised at the hypocrisy that we see, even at the highest levels in the, of the offices of our land, in our government. It's a shame, but duplicity is commonplace in the political world. 
What's disappointing, though, isn't it, is when we see it in our spiritual leaders, those stories are hard to bear up under. Pastors and teachers and elders and deacons who have, because of their duplicity and their hypocrisy, even caused people's lives and ministries to implode or explode. Ran into one little story about a a pompous-looking deacon who was endeavoring to impress upon his class of junior high boys the importance of living the Christian life. He was having a little trouble getting the class to engage, and so he asked the question, so why do people call me a Christian? And he waited in silence, and after a pause, one of the youngsters finally piped up and said, maybe it's because they don't know you. And so we see duplicity even in the church, even in spiritual leadership, don't we? One of the things we want to avoid this morning is, as we look into the Word, we want to be really careful to not receive this message as one of those sermons that would be really, really good for so-and-so to hear. I know just the person who needed to hear this message today. I want to tell you, I need this message today, and you need this message today, because don't we all in the dark underbelly of our lives, in our weak spots, don't we fight with pride, duplicity and arrogance, and to have the humility of Christ and a Christ-likeness about us, though it is our desire, we find ourselves capable of posturing, living in duplicity. It's a little bit like the, the mom who was fixing a dinner for some guests on a blistering hot day and she had a little four-year-old boy named Johnny and when they finally gathered around the table and she was a little bit exasperated, she looked over and said to Johnny, Johnny, why don't you return thanks? And he piped up and said, but I don't know what to say. And she said, oh, just say what you hear me say. The mother replied, and obediently the boy bowed his head and he mumbled, oh, Lord, why did I invite these people over on a hot day like today? (laughs) And so we get caught sometimes, don't we? We get caught acknowledging our disingenuous nature that so easily comes upon us. Well, I need to warn you a little bit as we jump into Matthew 23 now. We are beginning to pick it up at verse 13, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. So let me give you a few warnings, because it is a warning passage. First of all, you need to think of this passage as Jesus kind of unleashed. Um, this is not a lovey-dovey, cuddle, sing kumbaya, have a picnic with Jesus time. This is Jesus in your face. This is Jesus in really the harshest of terms. It is directed at the hypocrisy of spiritual leaders. You need to remind yourself that everything we're going to see in this passage today, we've already seen in the book of Matthew. We've been talking continually, week in and week out, forever, about these Pharisees, these scribes, these Levites, these These spiritual leaders who are part of the religious leadership of the day and they are just corrupt to the core. They're the ones who are going now in just a couple days from where we are in Matthew 23 are going to nail Jesus to a cross. They have been conspiring to kill him for 
the biggest part of three years. This is the closeout of our Lord's public ministry that we've been studying in detail in Matthew's Gospel. I need to warn you that we have to move through it. You'll get it, though. It's not hard to get. Every one of these woes, okay, so our passage today is defined by seven specific woes. Every one of them can be pictured with a word picture. Jesus gives us word pictures. You'll see word pictures like, you den of vipers. Well, we've heard that before. You blind guides, blind, leading the blind. We've heard that before in Matthew. He's going he's to use a word picture. Somebody of, who's a cartoonist here could draw a really cool cartoon, a caricature. You strain at gnats, but you swallow a camel. Hey, we need to, as we go through this passage, ask the Lord to show us. How, how are we like this? Maybe in a pseudo-spirituality. Also, though, to give us an awareness. Uh, another warning from the passage is that this stuff still goes on today among religious leaders and religious groups. And they lead people astray. And we need to have an acute awareness of how to defend ourselves against false teachers. And so our subtitle today is Six Disturbing Characteristics of False Teachers. It's really just a carry-on of the message from two weeks ago where we gave the basic profile of phony spiritual leadership and the introduction to this chapter in verses 1 through 12. Will you listen closely? What I want to do is I want to read the entire rest of chapter 23, beginning with verse 13. Let's put our eyes down on God's Word. Let's tune our ears in carefully. Let's have a tender heart for the Word of God. Here's Jesus in the strongest of terms. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert. And when he comes and when he becomes a convert or proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves." Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, well, then he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears or makes an oath by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever makes an oath or swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have not, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying... If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How do you escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I say, Woe. What a passage. You're going to need to look at your listening guide. It will be helpful to you or listen closely as we go. We cover exactly what it is our Lord is talking about here. Remember that it is most likely, based on the way the passage is introduced earlier, that Jesus is speaking most specifically to his disciples and the crowds. It is possible that the Pharisees are still slinking like coyotes around the outward edge of the crowds, but Basically, he's speaking in first person to his disciples about the Pharisees more than he's speaking directly at the Pharisees. His conversation and dialogue with the Pharisees is over. Their time is up. And they have refused the greatest invitation from the greatest evangelist who's ever lived. And they're going to find themselves in the pit of hell as a result. Well, there's six characteristics of false teachers I don't think you'll have any trouble tracking with me. First of all, we want to see as we follow through these woes that the, the first characteristic of a false teacher is that their gospel is always dysfunctional. Their gospel that they preach is always dysfunctional. Now notice that Jesus is speaking with these woes, okay? And we begin, look at verse 13 through 15. But woe, you scribes and Pharisees, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe is, is a strong condemnation. Make sure you understand. This is pronouncing judgment. Woe to you. It is a strong word of condemnation as used here. It's not used the way I did after I was done reading the passage. Like, woe. But it's a word of condemnation. You need to know that Jesus is judging. Jesus is judging in this passage. Yes, Jesus is the ultimate judge. And here he is spewing at these Pharisees for their rejection of what? Of the kingdom of heaven itself. He uses the word hypocrites over and over. Jesus is indeed, as we've emphasized, using harsh language. He's using harsh language. 
What's the problem with their message? Letter A, the problem with their message is that they refused to recognize Jesus for who he was. So there they have now for all of these months, even into years, have been witnessing the very personification of the kingdom of heaven at hand. Jesus himself. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the door that leads into the kingdom of heaven. And what do they do? They tell everybody, don't follow this guy. He's a charlatan. He's of his father, the devil. He's a Beelzebul. I mean, they can't stand Jesus. And here they have the doorway to the kingdom of heaven in their very presence. And in, and in their gospel, they say, don't follow Jesus. Keep the law of Moses. It'll, it'll make you righteous. Keeping the law will never make you righteous. You can't keep the law. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need the shed blood of Christ. Because only Jesus could keep the law for us. And by grace, through faith, that amazing grace that we sang about, grace alone, we go to the cross and we receive the completed, finished, substitutionary work of Christ through his death and then his burial and then his resurrection. And we receive a brand new life in him where he gives us his righteousness because he kept the law for us because we can't keep the law. But the Pharisees are going around saying, this guy's a charlatan when he's the very son of God in their presence. I mean... You can't make this stuff up. Think about back in John chapter 9. Let your mind just picture it. You know the story pretty well. The man was born blind from birth, remember? It's a pitiful picture. This man's about 40 years of age. He's mature. And all of his his life, he's been sitting in the dirt on the side of the road waiting for this one day. He's blind and he was born blind. And Jesus and his disciples come walking along. The Pharisees are watching. And Jesus comes along. And if I remember correctly in the passage, he spits in the dirt, smears some mud on the guy's eyes, and gives him sight for the first time in his life. And the man can now see. One of the greatest power moments you will ever witness if you were there. Of the creator of the world, encased in a human body, reaches down and touches a man and makes the blind man see. And the Pharisees look at it and they start to argue and hiss and gnash their teeth. Why? They're all worried about the fact that Jesus just did this on the Sabbath. You can't do ministry like that around here. We don't do it like that and you can't do it. They don't care at all about this man. Think about the greatest moment in the man's life is after 40 years, he can see again. And in fact, the passage clearly communicates that the whole reason the man was born blind is so that that day when Jesus walked by, he would have a blind man who was blind all of his life that he could reach out and make him see so that there would be no question that he was omnipotent. And the Pharisees call him of his father, the devil. You imagine having this demonstration of deity in front of you and insisting you don't follow this guy. They refuse to follow Christ. And we have case after case after case study in our New Testament of them insisting that Jesus, I mean, standing in the graveyard and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And they go get behind a closed door and sit around a table and try to figure out how they can kill this guy. They hate him so much. They do not believe he's the Messiah. And he calls a dead man right out of the tombs, right in front of everybody. And the crowds got huge. That wasn't very long before all this took place even here. 
And so there they have the doorway of heaven in their presence. And if you're the cartoonist can draw a caricature, you can draw this. There's the doorway to heaven. And there's the arrogant, proud Pharisees who consider themselves to be the guardians of the doorway of heaven. And people come and follow Jesus and they cry out, can I just touch the hem of your garment? And they say, get away, get away. And they slam the door in people's faces. And they themselves refuse to walk through that door. Their gospel is totally dysfunctional. Do you realize what a serious thing it is to tell somebody they're okay spiritually when they're not? You see, because that's what the problem with their mission was. Not only was their message dysfunctional, and they refused to recognize Jesus for who he was, slamming the door, verse 13, in their faces, but letter B, they had a problem with their mission. You see, they would lead their converts straight to hell. It says, look what it says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 15, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What are they talking about? Well, they took great pride in doing missionary trips. I don't know if they sent their youth groups out on missions trips, but they did missions trips. One of the greatest examples we have in our Bible is, the, is in the testimony, embedded in the testimony of Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul, is that he was a missionary of destruction, traveling to faraway cities, examining the roles, looking for converts to Judaism, and wiping out the face of Christianity off the earth if he could. Taking great pride in all that, and he said, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, until God knocked him down on his face on the road to Damascus one day. What are you talking about? So they, they took great pride in leading a Gentile into Judaism. And sometimes they would even relocate them to Jerusalem and into Israel where they could keep the law and they would dress like them and worship like them. And those Gentile proselytes or converts often became even stronger in their commitment to Judaism than the Pharisees themselves. They're twice as much a disciple of hell. I mean, they left their own home and they came and they're following the way of... They left a pagan culture and they're following Judaism. They are following the living God and the teaching of Moses, but they fall short. Just think about being that close to knowing who God is and falling short. And that's the way it is in a lot of religions today. They talk about God and they talk about Jesus. And they talk about a lot of elements that are in the Bible, but they... They just never make it to the cross where the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ gives us life everlasting. They depend on the trappings of their religion. That's what religion is. Religion is people trying to reach God in their own strength. If I do this, and if I do that, and if I keep the law, and if I tie phylacteries around my head and have scripture in a box, and I do this, I am so spiritual, surely God will let me into heaven. No, he won't. Until you bend to the cross and the blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin. I had a guy tell me the other day, we're talking about getting baptized, and he said, well, well, PV, he said, you're going to have to put a lot of lye in that water because it's gonna, I'm going to need some strong soap to wash me off, man. Talking about how sinful he had lived. And I said, no, you don't get it, man. There is no detergent that cleanses like the shed blood of Jesus Christ at the foot of the cross. And we enter the water of baptism as a testimony. That's my Jesus. I've been there, and he's cleansed me. And I identify with his death, his burial, his resurrection. I'm born again. But not these guys. 
Can you imagine teaching people that they have found the right way? And Jesus said, they're sending them to hell. There are people who knock on our doors and leave their little magazines. They say Jesus is a God. Jesus is not a God. That Jesus will not get you to heaven. Only the Jesus will get you to heaven. And there's people who will tell you that if you, if you say so many prayers and you do this and you do that, that you can get to heaven. No, you cannot. You cannot get to heaven through religious ritual. You can only get to heaven by faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ as you confess and repent of your sin at the foot of the cross. That's it. You ready to fill in some blanks? Not only do they have a problem with their message and their mission because their gospel is dysfunctional, but you want to notice, secondly, uh, Jesus calls them blind guides, 16 to 22. Their words are dishonest. Their words are dishonest. Now, we've heard this before. Back in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, they took oaths. They, they changed wording. Look what he says. Verse 16. Woe, you blind guides. You swear by the temple. If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. What are they talking about here? Don't be confused by it. It's very simple. The Pharisees made up formulaic oaths. And they knew the key. And so they knew that if they really didn't want to do something, they oh yeah, yeah, I swear by the temple, I'll be there at six o'clock. But six o'clock comes and they go, aren't you supposed to be over there? No, man. Didn't you swear by the... Yeah, but I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. <laughs> Stinking liars to the core. That's why in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus called them, said they're of their father, the devil, who speaks lies when he speaks his native language. It's unbelievable. This is liars. And so they manipulate things. Remember our message on Corbin? How they wouldn't want it. These Pharisees, they said they kept the law, but they wouldn't honor their father and their mother in their old age by taking care of them because it cost them money. They didn't want to put their parents up. They're going to drain the bank account. My parents' old age are going to die anyway. And so they came up with an oath that they could just say, Corbin, you can read about this in Luke chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12. And, and they would say, Corbin. And it was, a, it was an oath that they could say that meant all of their money was dedicated to God. And if all my money is dedicated to God, I can't spend it on even my mommy and my daddy. I'm so spiritual, I dedicated all my money to God. But as soon as mom and pop passed away, they uncorbined it, and then they had their money to go buy a new bass boat or whatever it was they wanted to do with it. They're playing games, they're liars. By the way, did I ever tell you the funny story about Ray Walls and Corbin? If I did, I'm going to tell it again anyway. It's a really funny story. Back when I preached that message, you know how I, I talk about Mountain Dew sometimes? I don't drink it very often at all, but I, I like Mountain Dew. And so I'm standing in the back after that message a couple weeks later, and Ray Walls goes out of the church, and he stands up over the top of everybody, and he says, Hey, PV! I came by your office the other day with a Mountain Dew for you, but you were busy, so I said Corbin and drank it myself. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. That's what these guys did. That's what they did with the things of God. They made up these oaths. Oh, by the gold on the temple. Well, what makes the gold sacred? The fact that it was in the temple. 
You see the, you see the, the hypocrisy that Jesus loathed? We must move on. Their words were dishonest. They twisted the truth by their special oaths. They twisted the truth by their special oaths. Blind guides is the word picture. A blind guide leading blind people off a, off a cliff. They were not guided by morality, but by their schemes and their selfish desires. Number three, their priorities are distorted. Their priorities were distorted. Because look what it says. He says in verse 23, You hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. What's he talking about here? Well, we don't have time to look up Deuteronomy 14.22, but it's in your notes. And they kept Deuteronomy 14.22 to the letter of the law. You see, dill and mint and cumin were kitchen spices. It's kitchen spices. So here's how it is. In Deuteronomy, Moses said, at the end of the harvest season, all of your corn, all of your soybeans, all of your wheat, all of your oats, all of your barley, 10% belongs to God. And these guys, when they would go outside the kitchen window where their, where their spice gardens grew and they had their mint and their cumin and their dill, and they would take that. It would be like us reaching up in the cabinet and getting a, a bottle of Mrs. Dash or pepper and, and tithing a tenth of it to the church. Aren't I spiritual? I tithe my Mrs. Dash. I not only tithe my money, I tithe my Mrs. Dash. That's what they're doing. So you've got to be kidding me. That's not what Moses was talking about. Oh, he said, if it grows in the field and we grew it, we got to tithe it. But they missed the whole point of the law. Remember, the law was to love the Lord your God all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And so all of the law is either vertical, teaching me to love God, or it's horizontal, teaching me to love my brothers and sisters. You see? And he says, you tithe your mint, your kitchen spices, and you keep the letter of the law, yet you miss the most important qualities. Micah 6.8 tells us what God requires of us, right? To do justice and to love mercy. Here he says what? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. The whole point of the law of Moses is to teach us to be truly just, merciful, faithful people. And you're boasting about tithing your Mrs. Dash? And you don't care that a man born blind just got to see? And you don't care anything about him? There's no mercy, there's no justice, there's no faithfulness, and you think you've kept the law, you're, gonna, you're bound for hell. That's what Jesus is saying. He gives the illustration of the gnat, the camel. That's easy for us to understand. They're straining at gnats. So you've got the cartoon picture. Guy's got a, some screen door glued to his teeth. And he's keeping gnats out of his mouth or something. And then the next frame, you know, it's a caricature picture and his mouth is open huge and the, the rear end of a camel sticking out of his mouth. And he's trying to swallow a camel while keeping gnats out of his mouth. It's like, buddy, you got everything flipped upside down here. You better care about the things that really need caring about. And about this time is when the Spirit of God needs to start poking us, Right? Their image was deceptive. We've got to fly now. We're beyond time. Their image was deceptive. Clean on the outside. He uses a simple illustration. You go in the kitchen, you open the cupboard, there's no bowls for your cereal. And you say, come on, woman, can't you wash the dishes? No, you better not say that. (laughs) You proud, arrogant slug. No dishes. So you look in the sink 
and there's a nasty bowl there. And you dump it out, you take a paper towel and wipe the outside of the bowl and you think, got me a good bowl to use here. No, you don't do that, right? You can polish the outside of the bowl. They cared about the outside while it was filthy on the inside. They, they took care of the tombs in the cemetery and they whitewashed them white and it was beautiful and ornate. But inside, they're still full of dead bones and slime of rot. You got the idea. This is not a new theme. Jesus continually dealt with their public image versus their heart attitude. Their image is deceptive. They continually focused on their public image, yet they had ugly, hard hearts. Their honor was disingenuous. This is an interesting passage segment here, 29 to 36. You build tombs out of the prophets, and you go and decorate, and you celebrate the monuments to the prophets. But in your heart, you're just like your fathers who killed the prophets. And he's talking now to the nation of Israel at large, not just the Pharisees, but through the centuries, the Israelites, as Jesus has already told specific parables, like the vineyard owner, I have sent these guys to you over and over and you stone them and you crucify them and you kill them and you reject the voice of truth in your life. They continually murdered the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, is most likely the prophet Zechariah because what is he saying when he says the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah? Zechariah is right at the end of the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, second to the last book of the Old Testament. He's bookending from the very first time innocent blood was shed when Cain killed Abel to the last prophet that was killed, Zechariah. Between the temple and the altar, somebody slashed him or hit him with a rock and they killed him because he was the voice of God. He said, you as a nation are guilty of all of this, and you Pharisees specifically. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, how many times would I have gathered you, my children? Some of you, some of you parents know this feeling, don't you? So I would have gathered my children under my wing, and I would have taken care of them, and they rejected me. And so the greatest invitation from the greatest evangelist that ever lived is rejected by his own people, the Israelites. And so they're going to live in despair and desolation. By 70 AD, 40 years from this date, we'll talk about this in chapter 24, 40 years from this date, the Roman soldiers are going to come in and ruthlessly murder over a million Jews in the most brut brutal ways. They're going to tear down the temple. And they're never going to be a nation again until 1948. Many of your lifetimes. What do you get out of this? I had four applications. Let me give you one. God hates pride. God particularly hates pride of religious people. And we need to take on the heart of Christ in humility, do we not? Well, may the Spirit of God continue to apply this passage to your lives. And so, Father, we look to you for our strength. We do not want to be hypocrites. May you take this abrupt ending from this powerful passage, and may your spirit convict us now in a very special way that is needed among us.